door. And I have the privilege of scripture reading and prayer for us this morning. This morning's scripture is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service, and patient endurance, and that your later works exceeded the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and I will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has to eat, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here in this building, we thank you for the ability to worship you in public without fear. God, thank you that you have created a place for us to do that. We know that everything we have comes from you, Lord. That all things that happen around us, our leaders, our nation, our teachers, our jobs, friends, family, enemies, everything is under your control. Disease, sickness, they are all under your control. You are the ultimate. You are the supreme God, the one, the only ruler. And in you, all things are under your control. God, I thank you for that. God, I ask for your blessing on all of North Shore Church and all of us here this morning. Keep us free from illness. Keep our minds clear. Help us to understand your word. Help us to embrace your word and your love as you have shown it through your son, Jesus, who has died on the cross, sacrificed his life for our lives so that we could have forgiveness of our sins. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for that completely and only through your work and in through your son can we find salvation. God, we ask that you would work through Duncan this morning, through the words I've written, I've read, I have read from your scripture, that his message would be clear and that our hearts would hear it, that the Holy Spirit would enable us to learn and to love more. And we ask this through your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Andy. 
Well, we continue on this week in our series of messages from Revelation chapters 2 and 3. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, or today, what we would call Turkey. This week's letter, as you just heard, is to the church at Thyatira. The city of Thyatira was about 45 miles southeast of the church we looked at last week in Pergamum. Of all the seven cities, Thyatira was the smallest. It was the least significant of all those cities. And it says something about Jesus that though Thyatira is the smallest of these seven cities he addresses, this is the longest letter he writes. And it's the one that actually is the most in-depth of all of his letters. Okay, that's not 20th century American values, is it? In the value of our culture, bigger is better. This long letter to this little city in Thyatira reminds us by implication, we who go to a church like North Shore, which is not a big church, reminds us, number one, we're very important to Jesus, irrespective of how many people we have. And two, we, like the church in Thyatira, this little city, will not escape Jesus's piercing gaze either, as they didn't. It's not all that unusual for individual believers to think about what Jesus would say to them if they were to meet him, say, this afternoon. But even though it may seem very alien to our highly individualistic culture, it is quite biblical for us in a local church to be thinking about what Jesus would say to us collectively as part of his bride, the church. That's going to happen too. So Thyatira wasn't a big city, but historians tell us that it was a very active manufacturing city. They made a lot of stuff in Thyatira, and there were a lot of people in the building trades in this area. We see an example of that, a familiar example, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. Luke says, one person who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, it makes sense, based on what we know about Thyatira, that she was a seller of purple goods because we know from the historians that there was a lot of fabric, a lot of woolens, and a lot of linen available. They did a lot of that kind of putting together of garments, and there was a lot of people who were engaged in dyeing fabric, which was an art back then. There were a lot of other trades, bakers and bronze makers and tanners and potters and all of those kind of things were available in abundance in this little city. The reason that's important is because in the first century, these trades were organized into what was known as trade guilds, okay? Uh, trade guilds did some of the same kind of things that trade unions do today. One of the differences between unions today and trade guilds back then, however, is that each trade guild had a patron god which was over it. Okay, for instance, the god of the metal workers was Vulcan. Okay, so each guild member was expected to pay homage to the god over their particular trade guild. So, there you are, believer. You're a coppersmith, and you're in seeking to be in that guild. And you find out that in order to be in that guild, you have to pay homage 
to the God of the Coppersmith Guild. As a faithful believer, you'll say, thanks, I'm not joining your guild. The problem is, is if you didn't join a trade guild, you didn't make a lot of money. And so there was significant economic persecution going on in Thyatira. Now, as Jesus opens the letter in verse 18, he identifies with himself, himself with the church, like he does in all the letters. He does it in three ways. And we need to remember that when Jesus identifies himself, he doesn't do that at random. He has a reason why he discloses that particular part of his personality or character to the church, okay? He's going to, in some way, draw on that later on. It's somehow connected with what he's going to say to these people in the letter. First, he calls himself the Son of God. Now, that's a broad title. We're not sure what all the implications of that is, but we do know that that's a title for deity. So he's calling himself God here, which in a place where there are so many small g gods would have been a good reminder for the church. He also says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Okay, this should be familiar to us because John describes Jesus this way back in chapter 1. Many of these self-descriptions in these letters are taken right out of chapter 1. And what that means is that's an image that symbolically conveys that Jesus sees everything. His eyes pierce everything, things in our heart and everything else. Nothing escapes his notice in an individual, and nothing escapes his notice in a local church. Finally, Jesus calls himself the Son of God, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Well, later on, there's going to be a strong emphasis on the judgment of Jesus, and so we get some help knowing what this symbol means from chapter 19 of the Revelation. There, Jesus reveals his wrath on unrepentant sinners. He says it will be administered at least symbolically with his feet as he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Okay? You don't want to be in that wine press being crushed under the feet of Jesus. Okay? That's a frightening picture of the punishment and wrath of Jesus that he's going to draw on later in the letter. As we said earlier, this is a long letter um, compared to the others, so we want to organize it the way Jesus structures it in the letter. First, he gives his commendation to the faithful believers in Thyatira. Then he gives his condemnation for the unrepentant sinners in Thyatira. And finally, he gives them an exhortation or promises to the church at Thyatira. So let's first look at Christ's commendation for the works of the church at Thyatira. Um, we see this in verse 19. Christ really makes, as you think about it, an amazing claim about this church. He says, I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So Jesus talks about works, and he divides these into two categories, if you were paying attention. First, he reveals the internal grace of the Holy Spirit that was working in their hearts of the believers in this church. Internal grace by the Spirit working in their hearts, that's what he's talking about when he says, I know your love and your faith. Those are internal, right? Internal qualities. They're part of our hearts, our dispositions, our attitudes, okay? If we have love, we have love in our hearts internally. And because Jesus has these eyes that blaze with with perfect perception, he alone is able to look into a person or a church and see if there's genuine love and genuine faith operating. And to Thyatira, he says, it's there, okay? You may remember that Jesus rebukes the church in Ephesus because it wasn't there. They had lost their first love. 
Not so these believers in Thyatira. They were motivated to live as they did by their love for God and their love for other people. But he says they were also people who had faith, okay? In other words, they were trusting in God irrespective of the circumstances, and that was evident in how they lived their lives. They were trusting in God, not on themselves. We see this explicitly in the second category of the works of this church, and that is the external fruit they express. So there's the internal grace and the external fruit they express. Jesus mentions this by saying their service and patient endurance. So this church was active in ministry and that ministry arose out of their love and their faith. That's a remarkable thing to say. When Jesus speaks of patient endurance, that word endurance we've seen before literally means to remain under. So this church was under some kind of opposition, probably from the government and probably in the form of this economic persecution that was going on within the trade guilds. From Jesus's commendation here of this church, we know the believers weren't griping, they weren't complaining, they weren't discouraged, they weren't downhearted, they were loving and trusting God, and they were enduring patiently, okay? Now, we know from Romans 5, chapter 4, that this church was also operating out of hope, because Paul tells us that patient endurance ultimately produces hope. Why that's important is because that means that this church had faith, hope, and love operating in it. <clears throat> and Paul, if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, says, faith, hope, and love, these abide. <clears throat> the greatest of these is love. The point is, is faith, hope, and love is the triad of Christian virtues. <clears throat> and this church in Thyatira has all of them. Okay? So the internal grace and the external fruit are operative in powerful ways in this church. Now, as impressive as that is, Jesus gives the church one final commendation, and that is, your latter works exceed the first. Okay? Again, the contrast with Ephesus is pretty clear. Jesus told Ephesus that they needed to repent and do the works you did at first, okay? They'd grown stagnant. Their zeal had waned. But in Thyatira, they were actually growing spiritually. They were growing in their zeal. There was genuine Holy Spirit-wrought spiritual growth occurring in this church, okay? They were in some ways becoming more like Jesus. So what Jesus says in his commendation of this church is really impressive. What's perhaps even more amazing is that after that glowing commendation about some of the fundamental or foundational elements that make for a healthy church, Jesus next reveals some significant weaknesses that significantly undermine church health. It almost seems like he must be talking about two churches here. So Thyatira was a strange mix of very strong elements, and as we'll see, some very weak elements. And so we ask, how can that be? That sounds impossible. Well, it sounds impossible until we look into our own hearts, right? Anybody else relate to this? I can. The church at Thyatira illustrates that living as a Christian, living as a Christian church in a fallen world is messy, by that I mean the nature of sin is so deep and so pervasive in this fallen world that even in comparatively healthy individual believers or churches, serious sin is often present alongside healthy elements. Okay? 
We need to understand that our sin is so evil and so tenacious that it can strongly manifest itself even in comparatively healthy individuals and churches, okay? Shouldn't be news to us. We see this all the time in our own lives, in our own families. On an individual level, this is why we should never be surprised when we see ourselves or other believers that we've respected for years do and say things that are completely out of character with what we've seen them in the past. Sometimes our response when that happens is to say, I thought I really knew you. I'm disillusioned now. A better response is to say, I think I did know you. I just think sin's in your life. And one of the dynamics of sin is it happens in people that really have a lot going for them, and sometimes they do just genuinely idiotic things. Okay? Look in a mirror. I mean, there's the testimony, right? At least for me, anyway. So Thyatira is not remarkable in this sense. It serves as a powerful example of the power and presence of sin, even in comparatively healthy believers and comparatively healthy churches. So let's look specifically at Christ's commendation, or let's take condemn. I know I was going to do that. Condemnation of the sin of Thyatira. Jesus' charge against this church is in verse 20, and it's a whopper. After listing these amazing marks of God's grace in the church, he says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Again, if you heard or saw last week's message on Pergamum, you probably noticed that the sins that Jesus cites there as a problem for Pergamum are almost identical to the ones he cites here in Thyatira, okay? The church was also guilty of tolerating idolatry and sexual immorality in the church. I don't know about you, but when I see two letters back-to-back that have very similar content in terms of the rebuke, the question that I ask is, why? Because the Holy Spirit's sovereign over what goes into the Bible, right? So why would Jesus highlight two churches that, although different in some regards, are struggling with basically identical kinds of sin, okay? Think about it. We know that Jesus writes to these churches to address not only those churches, but us and other churches down through history. So what can we learn from Jesus? What can we learn about Jesus? The fact that he addresses two churches whose sins were basically the same. Why didn't Jesus select a group of churches that offered a greater variety of sin issues in order to help a greater number of churches in the future? That came to my mind. I thought, why are these two so similar? Well, let me give you three reasons that I I believe are of God. First, because the church has always mightily struggled with idolatry and sexual immorality. Okay? If you know much about church history or biblical history, you know that these two sins have been the bane of God's people, Old and New Testament, since the fall. Given the unique, seductive, addictive nature of these two sins, it's appropriate for Jesus to have two churches side by side that are struggling with these. That's very realistic. A second reason is because Jesus deals with each church individually. I think this is very special. By that I mean he could have written to the church in Thyatira, for a treatment of your sins, please read my letter to Pergamum. Could have done that. But he doesn't. Even though both churches struggle with much the same sins, he treats both as individuals. Both churches receive his individualized attention. And the implication for us is that Jesus doesn't simply group North Shore in with a bunch of other northern Wisconsin churches. He relates to us 
distinctly, individually, with both his personal encouragement and his warnings to us. A third reason is because this repetition would encourage all seven churches. See, one of the things that we forget is we tend to think that the letter that went to Pergamum, that's what Pergamum read, and the letter that went to Thyatira, that's what Thyatira read. They all read all the letters because the larger letter that was being circulated was the letter of the Revelation. So all the churches read all the other churches' letters, okay? That's important. That means that for Thyatira to read what Christ said to Pergamum would have encouraged them to know somebody else is struggling too. God will give them grace. God can give us grace. And so also they can learn from how Jesus responded to them because in many ways it applies to their church as well. Likewise, when the loving believers of Thyatira read the letter to the loveless church in Ephesus, that would have put them on notice, at least implicitly. It says to them, the love that you now have and that is even growing, it can grow cold very shortly. All you have to do is watch Ephesus. They're a warning to you. So all of these churches read all of these letters. So what is the specific sin, if we could label that? Well, Greg Beale, who's probably the best Revelation scholar, says that their sin was the permissive spirit of idolatrous compromise, which you'd expect someone with a couple PhDs to say. John Stott is less academic. He says the root sin in Thyatira was indifference toward holiness in the church. Indifference toward holiness in the church. With all of its admirable marks of God's grace, the bottom line is the church at Thyatira wasn't very concerned about holiness. And by holiness in this context, we mean moral purity. That just was not evidently a big priority in this church. If it was, they would have done something about Jezebel. I hope we know what an epically serious weakness this is for a believer or a local church, to help us get a fix on how serious an indifference toward holiness is, I want to read some texts that bring this out. Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 4, he's speaking of Jesus and he says, even as he, Jesus, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Paul says that part of God's saving work in believers is that before the foundation of the world, as he's conceiving about a people that he would rule and reign, he set apart his chosen people for this purpose, to be holy and blameless before him. That's the purpose. There are other purposes, but that's a big one. That's the, that's the purpose that Paul isolates there, okay? And we know from the next verse that one reason why he chose us to be holy is because he also predestined us to be adopted as his children. And if you're a child of God, you will resemble your father, and your father is holy. Be ye holy as I am holy. Now, that means that eons ago, God, as he's planning to create a new race of humanity in his son, fallen but redeemed through his son, these people, his adopted children, would live holy and blameless lives where things like idolatry and sexual immorality would be a very big deal, okay? That's how important this is. As a holy people, they would hate sin and they would be seeking to kill it. 
in themselves. They would not peaceably cohabitate with sin, okay? They would work to get it out of the body, lovingly, gently, but getting it out of the body and getting it out of their own life. God didn't save us just to get us to heaven and keep us from hell, okay? He sent his sinless, glorious son to the cross to create a new, redeemed race of holy and blameless people. That needs to be part of our identity if we're a believer. I am part of a race of holy and blameless people. That means that we should regularly be asking ourselves, how am I doing at fulfilling that purpose of my life that was established before the foundation of the world? This is a big deal. We really need to hear how fundamental our holiness as individuals and as a church is to Jesus. It's a big piece of why he created us and why he recreated us by sending his son to the cross to die for us and redeem us. He doesn't just say this in Ephesians, though. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. When Paul says this is the will of God, he could have included a thousand different things. Any, a lot of things could be plugged in there, okay? A lot of things are God's will. But the thing that he brings out is he brings out our sanctification, our holiness. What he chooses to specifically name as God's will for us is our holiness, that sanctification, and that includes abstaining from sexual immorality. And the concern about holiness is not just Paul's concern. If you go to the book of Hebrews and read what the author of Hebrews says there in chapter 12, verse 14, listen to this. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, without which no one will see the Lord, okay? The author tells us that our holiness is not optional, nor is it merely legal. And what I mean by that is this is not the holy legal status that we're given because we're united in Christ. This is a holiness that we're supposed to strive after. Strive after peace, strive after personal holiness. This is our practical, day-to-day, lived-out holiness. And when you come before the judgment seat of Christ, if you don't have this, you will not be admitted, that's how important it is. You know when something's important, when one of the biblical authors says, and by the way, this keeps you out of heaven, okay? In spite of its clear strengths, the church in Thyatira was tolerating gross, unholy living in some of her people. They were indifferent to this. They weren't doing anything about it. Jesus said, you're tolerating this. It's amazing that their faith, hope, and love don't in some way insulate them from this weakness, but they don't. Specifically, they were tolerating a false teacher that Jesus calls Jezebel. The most natural way to understand this is that Jezebel was a real person, a real woman. Her name probably wasn't Jezebel, but because she lived so much like Jezebel, her heart was so much like the Old Testament Jezebel, who was Ahab's wife, Jesus calls her that to describe what she's like. In one word, he tells us a ton about what this woman is like, because all you got to read is the Old Testament article on, on Jezebel, and you find out a ton about this person. Now, she claimed to be a prophetess, and a prophetess was a woman who claimed to hear messages for the church directly from the Lord. Okay, that's what her claim was. I'm someone who hears messages for the benefit of the church, and I hear them from God. She taught that idolatry, which includes 
eating food that has been sacrificed to idols in pagan temples, and sex outside the covenant of marriage, we're either not sinful at all, or we're not all that serious. And some, he says, have been seduced by her, which simply means they've been influenced by her. Even though Jesus speaks of this woman with disgust, he's not always related to her this way. Even when he knew that she was actively defiling his bride with false teaching, he says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus knew this woman would never repent, but he gave her time to do it anyway because he's a God of grace. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. There is, however, a limit to God's patience, especially with people who are defiling his bride. And so, as a warning to the church, he predicts his now inescapable judgment of her. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation until they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. This promise of judgment has three parts, two that are reserved for her and one that are reserved for the people that are following her, that are her children who have been influenced by her. Jesus will personally throw her onto a sickbed. And as we've seen before, and it is common throughout the Bible, the punishment fits the crime. The bed of her immorality will become the bed of her suffering. The punishment implied of suffering on the bed, the sick bed, that implied to the first century believer great pain. Remember, there's no painkillers. There's no way to get, help you get to sleep. Being sick was a tough thing, especially if it was a sickness unto death. We don't know anything about, unless you go to a third world country, you just don't know what it is to be on a, on a sick bed when you don't have any medication. Okay, so this was great suffering for her. Jesus also says, those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. Great tribulation communicates intense suffering for those she's led astray. These people, again, will experience a kind of anguish that we in the West just don't see. Suffice it to say, this threat would have struck fear into the heart of any sane person in the church of Thyatira. Though the grace of God has been exhausted by this Jezebel woman, Jesus indicates that those who sinned with her as a result of her teaching are still given some time to repent. I would imagine God is far more patient with those who have been lied to than he is to people that are lying to the church to take them captive, which is what Jezebel was doing. However, Jesus will eventually give the ultimate punishment in this life to Jezebel's children or her followers. Literally, Jesus said, I'm going to kill these people by death, which is a way of being emphatic. The point is, there's no hope for escape or survival if you don't repent of these sins. That's how important this is. One of the differences between this letter and the letter to Pergamum is that here Jesus not only gives the consequences of his judgment, but he adds something else here. He gives his motivation for making this judgment so outwardly manifest. This was going to be known to everybody. A lot of sick people over there in Thyatira. That Jezebel woman, she's sick. She's been sick for weeks. She's suffering like crazy. A lot of people in Asia Minor are going to hear about this. And so he says in verse 23, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus will punish these 
unrepentant people, not only to demonstrate his justice, but for the good of other churches. He wants to reveal to these other churches. He wants to reveal to these other churches to show them that I am he who searches mind and heart. He wants these churches to know by experience what Jesus said about himself in verse 18, that he's the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. It's very important for the believer and for the church to know Jesus sees everything. Nothing escapes his sight. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Maybe the reason he gives this is because it's sexual sin. And as we know, sexual sin is often done in secret behind closed doors, and it can remain hidden for a long time. Jesus reminds us here, there are no secret sins where he is concerned. He sees it all, and he's promised to bring all things into the light, and the fact that no other human being may be aware of it doesn't mean that he's not aware of it, and he's prepared to bring his judgment on it. And one of the problems with being a fallen human being is if nobody in our circle knows we're doing something, we tend to think we're okay. We forget there's someone who sees everything. The third truth in the structure of this letter reveals Christ's exhortation and promises to the faithful believers in Thyatira. As with most sins treated in these seven letters, they were not being committed by the entire church. All of them in some ways were tolerating it, but now he turns and talks about those people who were not doing it and who were showing faith, hope, and love. We don't know what the percentage of people that were practicing the sins versus those who were not. We don't know that. We know that in verse 24, Jesus says to those who were not involved, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So what on earth does Jesus mean by referring to the teaching of Jezebel as what some call the deep things of Satan? Well, the scholars basically have one of two options. First, Jezebel, as a prophet, might have been claiming to have a teaching that expressed the deep things of God. And Jesus is just calling it where it really comes from. It's the deep things. So that's one. Second, it could be that the prophetess was teaching that in order to understand why these acts weren't wrong, you, you had to reveal the deep things about Satan. If you knew the deep things about Satan, then you'd understand these things are not wrong. It doesn't matter what the reason was. Whatever the case, Jesus reveal, is revealing that Jezebel is a liar, just like the one who inspires her and who empowers her, Satan. Jesus says to those who have not been involved in this sin, I do not lay on you any other burden. To those of you who know the book of Acts well, that sounds like a familiar phrase. And it is. It comes from Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council when all the leaders of the church early on in church history come together to try to resolve the tension between the Jews and these Gentiles that were coming to Christ in hordes. And that edict coming out of the Jerusalem council says, for it has seemed good, he's talking to the the Gentiles, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. There it is, right? Than these requirements. Now listen, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now there's no recorded problem in Thyatira of eating blood or eating things that have been strangled We know there were problems with sexual immorality and with idolatry. So Jesus is talking about what he, through the church leadership 40 years earlier at the Council of Jerusalem, had already established. 
no other burdens than what's already out there for you that you already know. The promise Jesus gives to this church, and there are a couple of them, are really interesting. In verse 26, he says, to those who hold fast what they have until Jesus comes to them, he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. That's astonishing. The truth that God's people will eventually reign with God over the nations is found in other places in the Bible. Earliest is probably Psalm chapter 2. God says to his people, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That speaks of God's people having authority over the nations. Jesus may have had that verse in mind when he made this promise to the people in Thyatira. Jesus himself said this to the faithful servant in the parable of the minas in Luke chapter 19. He says, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. That's a really interesting way to put that, isn't it? He says something specific, 10 cities, authority, okay? Now we don't know what this is going to look like when we rule with Jesus. Maybe that's the reason why we have so many planets out there. We don't know. But it shouldn't surprise us that God's people will be ruling and reigning with God because that's in the original purpose that God has for us. If you go back to Adam and Eve before the fall, okay? God made Adam and Eve, and he said, take dominion. Take authority over this earth. Rule over it as my vice regents. That's the original purpose God had for humanity, and it hasn't changed. Okay? And it's exciting to imagine what that might look like in eternity. And of course, the reason why we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ is because we're created in the image of God. Angels don't rule. People created in the image of God will rule. The last promise is in verse 28. He says, and I will give him the morning star. Now, the morning star is a title for Jesus. Peter uses it in 2 Peter. We see it in Revelation chapter 22, 16. The morning star in our galaxy, of course, is Venus. And these believers in Thyatira knew that Venus was a symbol of sovereign authority and rule. Again, the promise is that we will be given Jesus as the ultimate ruler of the universe. So the promises are related to one another. There's so much in this letter. Let's think a little bit about application. The broad message of the letter we could divide into two parts, the corporate part and the individual part. On a corporate level or a church level, the message is even in churches that powerfully manifest the grace of God, great evil and unholiness can be present at the same time. Okay? The second part addressed to individuals is unrepentant unholiness, no matter how healthy your church is, will bring eternal judgment to professed believers, those who claim to be believers, those who attend church. Again, as we said last week, we in the church must never tolerate unrepentant sin in the church. This is why Matthew 18 is in the New Testament. There are procedures for church discipline. This is why in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, correct those who are in sin, though do it gently, okay? This is why in Titus 3.10, Paul says, for a divisive person, warn him once, warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him, okay? 
Jesus is speaking of unrepentant sinners. These aren't people who are struggling with a sin, who deeply grieve over it and who are taking concrete measures to stop it. Maybe they're confessing it to others. These are people that are genuinely striving after a holy life. He's not talking about those people. That's not who he's talking about here. Everybody struggles with sin. He's talking about people who have unrepentant sin in the church and they're not concerned about it. We have an obligation to confront those people and if they remain unrepentant, to tell the elders and then they can bring it to the church if necessary. If you're living in unrepentant sin, you have to hear these warnings about Jesus that he's bringing to people who are indifferent to holiness. We need to repent, irrespective of how active you are in church, come and confess your sin to God to other believers. If you need time for prayer at the end of the church service, please come forward. The elders would be happy to pray for you. Also, just be joyful at how Jesus loves the church. He writes these letters because he loves his bride. He doesn't write them because he's on a power trip or because he's disgusted with them. He writes them because he loved them. He gave his life for these churches, and he gave his life for North Shore Church. And we need to remember that, not just individually, we need to remember that as a local church. That's important. May God give us the grace as individuals and as a church to prize holiness for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God. These are important, hard, but very important warnings because, Lord, we all, we're all sinners. We all have weaknesses, and all of us, in some ways, have been tempted to these sins. It's very relevant. Father, thank you that the gospel gives us power to fight sin. Father, thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ not only gives us cleansing from sin, it gives us empowerment over sin. Thank you that you have done the work on a cross so that we could live lives of holiness, increasing holiness. Father, it's so easy for us to forget that. It's so easy for us to become discouraged when we're struggling and we keep failing again and again. But God, your gospel has provided for the opportunity for us to live as holy people. We claim that promise. We thank you for that promise. We claim our identity as saints of God, those who have been set apart as sanctified holy. God, show us what that means and help us as individuals and help us as a local church to walk more and more in holiness for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.